0: A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 28. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, by Amelia B. Edwards, Chapter 10: Aswan and Elephantine, Part 1. The green island of Elephantine, which is about a mile in length, lies opposite Aswan and divides the Nile in two channels the Libyan and Arabian deserts, smooth amber sand-slopes on the one hand, rugged granite cliffs on the other, come down to the brink on either side. On the Libyan shore a Sheikh's tomb, on the Arabian shore a bold fragment of Moorish architecture, with ruined arches open to the sky, crown two opposing heights, and keep watch over the gate of the cataract. Just under the Moorish ruin, and separated from the river by a slip of sandy beach, lies Aswan. A few scattered houses, a line of blank wall, the top of a minaret, the dark mouths of one or two gloomy alleys, are all that one sees of the town from the mooring-place below. The black boulders close against the shore, some of which are superbly hieroglyphed, glisten in the sun like polished jets. The beach is crowded with bales of goods, with camels laden and unladen, with turbaned figures coming and going, with damaged cargo boats lying up high and dry and half heeled over in the sun. Others, moored close together, are taking in or discharging cargo. A little apart from these lie some three or four Dahabias flying English, American, and Belgian flags. Another has cast anchor over the way at Elephantine small rowboats cross and recross meanwhile from shore to shore dogs bark camels snort and snarl donkeys bray and clamorous curiosity dealers scream chatter hold their goods at arm's length battle and implore to come on board and are only kept off the landing plank by means of two big sticks in the hands of two stalwart sailors things offered for sale at aswan are altogether new and strange here are no scarabi, no funerary statuettes, no bronze or porcelain gods, no relics of a past civilization. But, on the contrary, such objects as speak only of a rude and barbarous present. Ostrich eggs and feathers, silver trinkets of rough Nubian workmanship, spears, bows, arrows, bucklers of rhinoceros hide, ivory bracelets cut solid from the tusk, porcupine quills, baskets of stained and plated wreaths, gold nose-rings, and the like. One old woman has a Nubian lady's dressing-case for sale, an uncouth, fetish-like object with a cushion for its body, and a top knot of black feathers. The cushion contains two coal-bottles, a bodkin, and a bone-comb. But the noisiest dealer of the lot is an impish boy blessed with the blackest skin and the shrillest voice ever brought together in one human being. His simple costume consists of a tattered shirt, and a white cotton skull-cap, his stock in trade of a greasy leather fringe tied to the end of a stick. Flying from window to window of the saloon on the side next to the shore, scrambling up the bows of a neighboring cargo-boat so as to attack us in the rear, thrusting his stick and fringe in our faces, whichever way we turn, and pursuing us with eager cries of Madame Nubia, Madame Nubia, he skips and screams and grins like an ubiquitous goblin, and throws every competitor into the shade. Having seen a similar fringe in the collection of a friend at home, I at once recognized in Madame Nubia one of those curious girdles which, with the addition of a necklace and a few bracelets, form the entire wardrobe of little girls south of the cataract. They vary in size according to the age of the wearer, the largest being about twelve inches in depth and twenty-five in length. A few are ornamented with beads and small shells, but these are parures de luxe. The ordinary article is cheaply and unpretentiously trimmed with castor oil. That is to say, the girdle when new is well soaked in the oil, which softens and darkens the leather, besides adding a perfume dear to native nostrils. For the Nubian who grows his own plants and bruises his own berries, this odor is delicious. He reckons castor oil among his greatest luxuries. He eats it as we eat butter. His wives saturate their plaited locks in it. His little girls perfume their fingers with it. His boys anoint their bodies with it. His home, his breath, his garments, his food are redolent of it. It pervades the very air in which he lives and has his being. Happy the European traveller who, while his lines are cast in Nubia, can train his degenerate nose to delight in the aroma of castor oil. The march of civilization is driving these fringes out of fashion on the frontier. At Aswan they are chiefly in demand among English and American visitors. Most people purchase a Madame Nubia for the entertainment of friends at home. L, who was given to vanities in the way of dress, bought one so steeped in fragrance that it scented the fillet for the rest of the voyage, and retains its odor to this day. Almost before the mooring-rope was made fast, our painter, arrayed in a gorgeous caffella, and armed with the indispensable visiting cane, had sprung ashore and hastened to call upon the governor. A couple of hours later the governor, having promised to send at once for the sheikh of the cataract and to forward our going, by all means in his power, returned the visit. He brought with him the Mudder and kadi of Aswan, each attended by his pipe-bearer. We received our guests with due ceremony in the saloon. The great men placed themselves on one of the side divans, and the painter opened the conversation by offering them champagne, claret, port, sherry, curacao, brandy, whiskey, and angostura bitters. Ptolemy interpreted. The governor laughed. He was a tall young man, graceful, lively, good-looking, and black as a crow. The Kadi and mudder, both elderly Arabs, yellow, wrinkled, and precise, looked shocked at the mere mention of these unholy liquors. Somebody then produced lemonade. The governor turned briskly towards the speaker. "'Gazoso?' he said interrogatively. To which Ptolemy replied, "'Iwa, yes, gazoso.' aerated lemonade and cigars were then brought. The governor watched the process of uncorking with a face of profound interest, and drank with the undisguised greediness of a schoolboy. Even the kadi and mutter relaxed somewhat of the gravity of their demeanor. To men whose habitual drink consists of lime water and sugar, bottled lemonade represents champagne mousseau of the choicest brand." Then began the usual attempts at conversation, and only those who have tried small talk by proxy know how hard it is to supply topics, suppress yawns, and keep up an animated expression of countenance, while the civilities on both sides are being interpreted by a dragoman. We began, of course, with the temperature, for in Egypt, where it never rains and the sun is always shining, the thermometer takes the place of the weather as a useful platitude. Knowing that Aswan enjoys the hottest reputation of any town on the surface of the globe, we were agreeably surprised to find it no warmer than England in September. The governor accounted for this by saying he had never known so cold a winter. We then asked the usual questions about the crops, the height of the river, and so forth, to all of which he replied with the ease and bonhomie of a man of the world. Nubia, he said, was healthy. The date harvest had been abundant, the corn promised well, the Sudan was quiet and prosperous. Referring to the new postal arrangements, he congratulated us on being able to receive and post letters at the second cataract. He also remarked that the telegraph wires were now in working order as far as Khartoum. We then asked how soon he expected the railway to reach Aswan, to which he replied, in two years at latest. At length our little stock of topics came to an end, and the entertainment flagged. "'What shall I say next?' asked the dragoman. "'Tell him we particularly wish to see the slave-market.' The smile vanished from the governor's face. The mutter set down a glass of fizzing lemonade, untasted. The cadi all but dropped his cigar. If a shell had burst in the saloon, their consternation could scarcely have been greater." The governor, looking grave, was the first to speak. He says there is no slave trade in Egypt and no slave market in Aswan, interpreted Ptolemy. Now we had been told in Cairo, on excellent authority, that slaves were still bought and sold here, though less publicly than of old, and that of all the sights a traveller might see in Egypt, this was the most curious and pathetic. No slave market, we repeated, incredulously. The governor, the cadi, and the mutter shook their heads, and lifted up their voices, and said all together like a trio of mandarins in a comic opera, La, 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 ma fiche bazar, ma fiche bazar. No, 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 no bazar, no bazaar. We endeavored to explain that in making this inquiry we desired neither the gratification of an idle curiosity, nor the furtherance of any political views. Our only object was sketching understanding therefore that a private bazaar still existed in aswan this was too much for the judicial susceptibilities of the cadi he would not let ptolemy finish there is nothing of the kind he interrupted puckering his face into an expression of such virtuous horror as might become a reformed new zealander on the subject of cannibalism it is unlawful unlawful an awkward silence followed we felt we had committed an enormous blunder and were disconcerted accordingly. The governor saw, and with the best grace in the world, took pity upon our embarrassment. He rose, opened the piano, and asked for some music, whereupon the little lady played the liveliest thing she could remember, which happened to be a waltz by Verdi. The governor, meanwhile, sat beside the piano, smiling and attentive. With all his politeness, however, he seemed to be looking for something, to be not altogether satisfied. There was even a shade of disappointment in the tone of his Kether, Kirek, Keter, when the waltz finally exploded in a shower of arpeggios. What could it be? Was it that he wished for a song, or would a pathetic air have pleased him better? Not a bit of it. He was looking for what his quick eye presently detected, namely some printed music which he seized triumphantly and placed before the player. What he wanted was music played from a book. Being asked whether he preferred a lively or plaintive melody, he replied that he did not care, so long as it was difficult. Now it chanced that he had pitched upon a volume of Wagner, so the little lady took him at his word, and gave him a dose of Tannhauser. Strange to say he was delighted. He showed his teeth, he rolled his eyes, he uttered the long-drawn ah, which in Egypt signifies applause. The more crabbed, The more far-fetched, the more unintelligible the movement, the better, apparently, he liked it. I never think of Aswan, but I remember that curious scene. Our little lady at the piano, the black governor grinning in ecstasies close by, the cadi in his magnificent shawl turban, the mutter half asleep, the air thick with tobacco-smoke, and, above all, dominant, tyrannous, overpowering, the clash and clang, the involved harmonies, and the multitudinous combinations of Tannhauser. The linked sweetness of an Oriental visit is generally drawn out to a length that sorely tries the patience and politeness of European hosts. A native gentleman, if he has any business to attend to, gets through his work before noon, and has nothing to do but smoke, chat, and doze away the remainder of the day. For time, which hangs heavily on his hands, he has absolutely no value." His main object in life is to consume it, if possible, less tediously. He pays a visit, therefore, with the deliberate intention of staying as long as possible. Our guests on the present occasion remained the best part of two hours, and the governor, who talked of going to England shortly, asked for all our names and addresses that he might come and see us at home. Leaving the cabin, he paused to look at our roses, which stood near the door we told him that they had been given to us by the Bay of Erment. Do they grow at Erment? he asked, examining them with great curiosity. How beautiful! Why will they not grow in Nubia? We suggested that the climate was probably too hot for them. He stopped, inhaling their perfume. He looked puzzled. They are very sweet, he said. Are they roses? The question gave us kind of a shock we could hardly believe we had reached a land where roses were unknown. Yet the governor, who had smoked a rose-water narghile, and drunk rose sherbet, and eaten conserve of roses all his days, recognized them by their perfume only. He had never been out of Aswan in his life, not even as far as Erment, and he had never seen a rose in bloom. End of Section 28